Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. History is easily reduced to abstractions because it's experienced primarily through whatever documentation has survived. Photographs and films, but more commonly, the written word. And what remains can become metonymic for an event or an entire historical era, and the greater complexities are lost, particularly in the popular imagination. Adolf Reed Jr., who grew up in New Orleans during Jim Crow, attempts to reassert those complexities with his latest book, The South, Jim Crow and Its Afterlives, which is excerpted in the January 2022 issue. Reed examines quotidian life under Jim Crow while taking care to note that his experiences were fundamentally shaped by his age, his location, and his class position. I spoke with Reed about preserving the fundamental open-endedness of history, our current obsession with how the past is discussed, and recent failures to protect voting rights. I'll start off by sort of asking about the, the book as a whole. You decide to structure so much of the book around your personal experiences of the Jim Crow and post-Jim Crow South. And at times it reads almost as a memoir, except for that the aim is always instructive and historically rooted rather than confessional or self-revelatory. Right, exactly. And, and what's striking is how you tend to access the larger historical truths of Jim Crow from or through memory, where I think many writers and certainly most historians would have gone the other way around and used memory to give texture or credence to general claims. And I, I, I think this is really effective, but it's a surprising method. How did you land on that? Well, that's an interesting question, and I really appreciate your, your perceiving that it's, that it's not a memoir, because I, I have to tell you, when we got the first cut on catalog copy from the publicity department, I threw like a major fit and threatened to let the book die on my computer. Oh, man. <laughs> because they were trying to sell it as a memoir, and it's absolutely not that. And I mean, interestingly... Or feels interesting to me anyway. I don't know. I think it's responsive. But I, when I first started writing, and this was like 2002, 2003, something like that. And I think I mentioned someplace that I wrote it or I began writing with no particular objective in, in mind. The first draft, which was around 15,000 words, so right smack dab in the middle of that no person's land, right? Up too long for an article, too short for a book. And even Rick MacArthur thought it was too long for an article. And <laughs> we've been friends for a long time. <laughs> but uh, there, there was really nothing of me in it at all, except uh, some of what you see now, like the hook to several of the vignettes toward the end of the book, right? Like the trailways bus ride and the airport experience and that kind of stuff. But yeah, because it never was a memoir in my mind, because what would be the point of that? I mean, who would care? Right. I mean, I wouldn't care. I wouldn't expect anybody else to. So what I wanted all the way you know, from beginning to end was to try to leave a reader with a sense of what quotidian life under the Jim Crow order was like, but not just you know, individual experience, but how the structures on which the order was grounded and through which it was reproduced played out in people's lives. And, and that playing out in people's lives was also part of the reproduction of the order, right? So that's what I really wanted to try to convey. And I think that's what the, and I mean, for me, like the, if there's a continuum at one end of which we 
um, understand ourselves as an individual agents who struggle to overcome the constraints of circumstances. And at the other end of the continuum, we understand ourselves as the products of our circumstances and how our efforts to operate within them and, and to understand them are constrained by the structural weight of the circumstances. I'm much closer to the latter end of the continuum than I am to the former. I tend to be much more one of those people make their history, but not on the terms of their own choosing kind of guys. A quote that's sort of relevant to this question is, I can just read this. It's from page 140. As I noted from the outset, I was prompted to undertake this rumination, partly by the sense that my age cohort, those born in the first decade or so of the post-war baby boom, very soon will be the last living Americans with direct knowledge and recollections of the Jim Crow era. I felt, therefore, that it could be useful to leave some sort of account as a record. I make no claim to generality, much less universality. I'm very much aware that my perspective is partial, shaped by where I lived and when, class position, and family circumstances, and my age during those years, end quote. Bingo. Yeah, that's it. And then, I guess, two, two terms that come up again and again in the way you describe history are continuity and change. And you're, you're always discussing or demonstrating the change embedded in continuity and the continuity embedded in change. In the last chapter, you talk about the strangeness and inevitability of watching history that you lived through being remade into, quote, grist for the scholarly, ideological, and casual interpretation and debate. And there's this really crucial part where you say a danger is that when reckoning with the past becomes too much like allegory, its nuances and contingencies, its essential open-endedness can disappear. So why is why is preserving the essential open-endedness of history such an urgent project? Wow. Yeah, that's a huge question. I think, well, I mean, for me, uh, yeah, I think it's an urgent project in a couple of different domains, right, or dimensions even. One, I mean, intellectually, right? I mean, there'd be no reason for you to know this, and there really wouldn't be any reason for you to look at it. But the conclusion of my book, on W.E.B. Du Bois's political thought is an argument uh, about exactly this way of approaching history. And it's an argument for a way of thinking about the relationship between past and present that I describe as a generative one or, or like an evolutionist one. I mean, that is to say that the past remains embedded in the present in the same ways that an old, uh, I mean, political order or remnants of an old social order uh, can re remain embedded in a new one. So that's on one level, right? So from that perspective, it's like you know, a pedantic warrant, right? From, from somebody who's spent like more than half a century as a professional historian of ideologies. <laughs> okay. The more direct and concrete one, or I guess political one or civic concern, and of course, that there's a great zone of overlap between the two, but is that the view that nothing ever changes is like fundamentally a reactionary one. I mean, a politically uh, reactionary one, because what, what it does is say there's no hope, hope for change in the world. Things can never get any better. And maybe you could say the good side of it is things couldn't get any worse. I don't know. But I'm concerned about that as well. And I mean, that also comes in a couple of different ways. I mean, 
Year, years ago, it was actually shortly after my father died, and I was out in Fayetteville, Arkansas, kind of looking for something to do to, to take my mind off it. And Cold Mountain just started playing in the theater, and I went with a couple of friends to see it. But before I went, I read a review that a Manola Dargis, who was still at the LA Times, wrote, and it was a brilliant thing that I've assigned often since then about what's happened with period dramas in popular filmmaking. And she made the point that the only people who pay attention now to historical specificity are the set and costume designers, right? So that there's a meticulous effort, vast effort that goes into getting, you know, I don't know, the hardware from 1863. Mm -hmm. Correct, right? Yeah, I mean, the hardware right on the cabinets. But the sensibilities that are expressed by the characters through dialogue is is totally presentist, right? And the mindset of the moment when the film is actually made is is kind of projected back onto the past. Well, to me, that's almost consistent, well, not almost. I mean, that is consistent with what I think of as a nightmarish and a, you know, dystopian idea that things have always been the same since Homo sapiens first crawled out of the Olduvai Gorge. So I want to counter that also. Yeah, I think it's it's really valuable, especially in this time when there's this real interest in the past and interest in how we got to where we are, perhaps more pressing than it has been in the past. But again, like, you know, I'm, I'm speaking about my own experience, my own perspective may not be true for everyone. Well, I tell you what, though, I mean, yeah, it's an interesting comment that you make. I mean, people talk about the past a lot, but mainly, and I think, yeah, I suspect this is true, like across the ideological continuum, but I know, like I encounter it, right, I mean, much more on the ends of people who consider themselves allied with progressive interests or, or causes, but the notion that people go to the past much more, and I think this is the spirit of the comment that you quote too at the end, people go to the past much more for inspirational messages than they do for trying to help us understand that present back when it was a present or ours, right? And that's also part of what I want to overcome. And and it's true. Like I, what I am, you know, I'm as much an historian as, as a political scientist, as I've been honored to have some of my friends in history say. And of course, my, you know, my son is also a card-carrying historian. Uh, but I think it's it's important for us to think concretely and in complex ways about the past, if only to undercut the possibility of of, of people being able to use it as a fortune cookie factory, right? Uh, well, to validate claims about the present. Right. And I mean, I think sort of on this similar topic, you know, in the introduction, you discuss what you call, quote, the current attention to recuperating Black slavery as the essentially formative Black American experience. Right. But in your view, it's Jim Crow that, as you put it, quote, has had the most immediate consequences for contemporary life and the connections between race and politics in the South and less directly the rest of the country. So if that's the case, then why this emphasis on putting slavery at the center of Black experience? Well, that's a $64 question, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, well, yeah, I'm actually trying to write a kind of polemical essay that touches on that question at this moment, because it is a curious one. And 
Well, I think a couple of things. I think that there are a number of reasons. One of them, uh, kind of an easy one, is that people just don't know any better, right? So that there's like a general perspective out there, and even among you know people who get paid to profess for a living, that like there used to be the bad old-timey times, and part one of the bad old-timey times was slavery, and part two of the bad old-timey times was Jim Crow. Often people don't make distinctions among them, and it's partly because what's happened in the recent decades. Well, I'll digress for myself for a second. A couple of years before I retired, I taught a grad seminar on Black American political thought that was really more of a, you know, in the 20th century, there was really more a bibliographical course than it was um, a regular course. So the readings were massive, right? And students led discussions around sections of the weekly readings. And one student, very precocious, smart, was uh, the first year student in political philosophy who didn't have any real background in the stuff, but she was leading discussion of a batch of readings published between the mid-30s and the mid-40s. And she remarked that the first thing that she noticed was that none of the people whom, whom she'd read talked at all about the need to combat racism. And I said, yeah, that's right, because they had specific policies and policy agendas that they advocated and specific policy agendas that they opposed. And that's kind of what you expect to see when there's a dynamic political movement that's underway and people are actually struggling for things, trying to form alliances and hold them together and push them down the road and so forth and so on. So one of the things that's that's happened is that as the target of whatever we want to call like the struggle for improvement of the circumstances of black Americans, as the target shifted from specific policy objectives and agendas to an abstraction or, or to fighting an abstraction called racism, then it became tougher for people like to make distinctions, right? So Barbara Fields has said famously that the ways that a lot of people nowadays write and talk about slavery, that you think that the purpose of slavery was the production of white supremacy, not the production of cotton, cane, and uh, tobacco. So it's been disconnected from its roots in, in an economic system. It's been disconnected from its roots in a labor system, which is what slavery was. And that's also what the objective of the Jim Crow order was, to construct a social order that eliminated the possibility of challenge to the dominant planter, merchant, and capitalist class in the South after the defeat of, of populism. But if you separate slavery and the Jim Crow era from their foundations in practical politics and political economic objectives, well, then the only thing you've got that connects them is, you know, racism, brutality. And and my son's quip is that people often want to talk about slavery or the, you know, sharecrop system as though it were white people's permanent sadistic camp for for the torture of black people. But of course, what that opens up to, and I'm sure that almost nobody would acknowledge this, but that if we understand 
what's objectionable about exploitation of black people as slaves, exploitation of black people under the Jim Crow system, as its brutality, then it's possible, at least in principle, to imagine even slavery without brutality. And the logic of it is, well, if what's objectionable about slavery is is its brutality or the oppression porn, then if you can imagine slavery without the excesses of oppression porn and only the exploitative labor relation, well, maybe it wouldn't be so bad. So another objective of mine is to try to clarify how we think about those distinctions in, in the past. And I haven't skirted your, your question, I'm still, or your, your essential question, I'm still puzzling over it myself. And I guess what I would answer ultimately is that when you get down to it, I think that the attractiveness of slavery as the definitive experience of Black Americans is that it's remote enough, it's brutal enough, it's objectionable enough that it confers a kind of moral standing on those people who make the claim. But the irony for me, again, is that, you know, like 20th century Black politics was largely driven by the struggle, not against slavery, obviously, because that battle had been won about 100 years before, but the struggle against this particular set set of institutions that wedded uh, a codified racial hierarchy to a regime of you know, exploitation and, and oppression. And, and I think that for a lot of people, that's just too concrete. I mean, some of them, well, but I think a lot of people, for instance, just don't don't want to make a distinction, right? And I mean, insofar as as we've had now several decades of the punchline being racism, then there are more and more people, I think, who don't want to or aren't um, capable, at least not on first blush, of making distinctions between social orders so long as you can kind of slap the label racism on all of them. And I think that consciously or not, that way of thinking about racial inequality works out well because since the victories of the mid-1960s that have undercut the foundations of the Jim Crow order, persisting economic inequalities and other inequalities that appear statistically at least to be sharply skewed racially, at least on the first cut, could very well require, in fact, I would argue that they do require more complex and sophisticated explanations and therefore more sophisticated kinds of responses than is possible through painting with the broad brush of calling it all racism. Right. I mean, I totally agree with your point that Jim Crow, it was set up to prevent, you know, prevent a lot of things, you know, specifically black uh, economic development. It was also created to prevent solidarity between poor whites and newly liberated blacks. But I think when you know, I'm I'm not talking about sort of like the big universe of films that depict slavery or, you know, even something like the 1619 Project. I'm thinking when people talk about reparations, when people are talking about the case for reparations, there is this focus on the economic right. component because this country was constructed off of free labor. Right. And yeah, so, I mean, it's not like that element is completely gone, but... 
it's it's tricky. Well, yeah, it's a lot trickier than people want to make it to be, too. So, like in the thing thing that I'm writing now, actually, I just yeah, I reflected on the moment at the beginning of the century when the reparations talk sort of popped up in mainstream discourse, and I was bemused you know, to see it. And let me say also that that that's really good of you and on target of you, like to finger the reparations discourse at the center of this, because I think that that's what's driving a lot of this funny way of talking about history. But, 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 but I think it's the, it's animating sensibility behind the 1619 project, right? Is, is the idea of, of contributing to a, what's in effect like a lawyer's brief for uh, the reparations, right? So what, what I just, just wrote was that when, after a little while, right, I, people started asking me what I thought about the reparations idea. And my first response then, and it is still my first response is, well, first question is, how can you imagine putting together a political coalition that could prevail on this issue in, in an electoral democracy? Right. It's been over 20 years. I haven't gotten a response to that question. Right. Or at least not a direct one. What, what I've gotten is a lot of deflections. One of the most common ones being, well, don't you think that Black people deserve something after all the suffering. And I mean, a lot of people suffered here, right? In New Orleans, where I spent a lot of my life, upwards of 20,000 Irish immigrants were buried in digging the New Basin Canal like in the 1830s, died building it under horribly exploitative conditions. And I mean, the history of, you know, class power in America is such that carving out the differences between those who suffered unjustly and those who have suffered more unjustly or not unjustly or less un- unjustly it is a fool's errand, right? No, it's a and, trap, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a trap, yeah. And I mean, plus, what, I mean, going back to you know, Bill Clinton's you know, national conversation about race, which, by the way, was something that he came up with to try to rehabilitate himself for having tossed his good friend Lalani Guineer overboard, you know, but also for trying to sanitize himself after so-called welfare reform and ending the federal government's commitment to direct provision of, of housing for the indigent. But the only thing that could come out of that national conversation about race, which seems like the thing we've been having now for 30 years, is something like off the Oprah show or worse, like a show jointly hosted by Oprah and Mort, Mort Downey, but where people would say things like, well, my ancestors came here from Sicily in like 1890, uh, didn't have a pot to piss in, et cetera, et cetera, never owned slaves and this, that, and the other. And I mean, it, it, it's, it's like counter solidaristic from the very beginning, right? I mean, it's, it's the opposite. I mean, this is the stance that's the opposite or the stems from the opposite of a commitment to to the animating sentiment that drove you know the black movement if you want to call it that that I was talking about earlier from the 30s right through the 60s I guess or through well into the 60s you know which was to build as broad a coalition as possible and also the understanding that the best way to win and the safest way to secure benefits for black people 
is to win them for everybody. Not means tested, just for everybody. Right, exactly. Yeah. And 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 I've been thinking more and more lately about how the kind of you know, the crucial moment and this is like a chapter in a long suffering book that I owe to Verso that I hope to finish by the end of this calendar year. But yeah, but that the shift it in the mid sixties that you know, disconnected both racism and economic inequality from political economy, both as in one instance racism and the other instance poverty, it is also what you know, would open the door to a new approach to social policy that's all about means testing. And we see what that's done done for us. Yeah, I mean it's exacerbated racism in a way that I don't think people really want to talk about. Um, But I mean, I think there's also, you know, sort of commenting on the discourse. I think part of what the focus on slavery has been in talking about the past Mm -hmm. is to establish that this is part of the structure of the country, that there are structures of racism built in. So somebody from Italy who came over, they're not necessarily starting from the same place as someone who, you know, is descended from slaves and that they're, you know, the way in which Italians and Irish people were sort of folded into white supremacy, those roads were not opened for, that was not an option for descendants of slaves. So I totally appreciate your point that perhaps certain things are overemphasized. However, I do think it, it is helpful to talk about suffering in some capacity and just to be like, look, th- this structure is why, so, you know, some people's suffering was worse and not not necessarily measure it, but yeah. to say like, these these are two different situations and not collapse them. Right. Well, yeah, I wouldn't collapse them. But I mean, gee, I don't know. I mean, in, in the late 19th century, when um, Chinese people were imported to the Mississippi Delta, by planters, 1860s, maybe uh, early 1870s. It was with the full racist belief that they could live on less than blacks could as sharecroppers. And in the first generation or so, and something comparable happened with the Sicilians in the cane fields in South Louisiana, in the first uh, new generation or so, uh, because they were slotted into the political economy in the same niches that the blacks were, they, you know, sort of lived together and like intermingled together in whatever ways. And then, as I say in the book, but, but it's not like they brought a white supremacist gene with them. But when you move into a new setting and figure out what, what the local rules are, both the formal ones and the informal ones, it's a reasonable adaptation to try to make certain that you aren't understood to be whatever the population is that's consigned to the bottom. All right, so there's a lot of struggle over decades about that or about who got, who got to be considered white, basically. And then after immigration restriction was passed, the pressure was eased, and then comes the New Deal and CIO trade unionism that makes improvements in your standard of living available to those workers. And then like um, all of a sudden they all become white, basically. Kind of. I mean, that's a very much oversimplified way of thinking about it. But like even taking the 1619 narrative, right? 
And I mean, Jim Oaks and Sean uh, Newellens and others have been very, very good on this. Oaks, Oaks is brilliant on it. That the story was never that simple, right? There were, there was a powerful anti-slavery voice. One could say tradition uh, and, and principle of anti-slavery constitutionalism, right? That was present in American political debate, right? I mean, before the founding, right? It's no accident that. Slavery isn't mentioned, right? Right, any place in the Constitution. Post office is, by the way, which I like to keep <laughs> pointing out to people. Uh, but and something had to happen for the elites of eleven slaveholding states were convinced that Abraham Lincoln's election was enough of a threat to the system of slavery that they perpetrated treason to try to get away from it. Right. So it was there. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, this was an issue, as you rightly say, from the start of the country. And it was just, right. they kicked it down the road as for as long as they can. And then finally there came this point where it couldn't be, it couldn't be ignored anymore. Right. That's right. You couldn't, I guess a certain kind of Marxist would say that the contradiction had matured to a point where it just couldn't be papered over or, or, I mean, finessed anymore. But see, what happens, though, is, and this is where, what, I mean, this is another way that racism functions as a flim-flam that papers over contradictions within the argument. Because there were, uh, there were a lot of different reasons that people opposed slavery from 1787 on. 1619, it, it wasn't an issue because most labor of whatever sort was, was bound Right. Anyway, right. I mean, most white labor was was bound in some ways or others, and and I mean, legal historian Robert Steinfeld's work on this is 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 a really great. Like what we think of now as free labor wasn't the norm for anybody, even for northern white workers, until after the Civil War. So I mean, this is another reason that's really helpful to think contextually about this stuff, right? Well, one of the most dangerous occasions for a budding uh, an intellectual historian is that the more familiar the, the, the arguments and the statements that people in the past made seem to be to a contemporary sensibility, the greater the danger that you will take them as meaning something that they did not and could not possibly have meant at the time. So, and look, I've had students, well, my son is like, the, has the same, well, but the same kind of response. So, like, I had a grad student once who, who sat to me in a seminar on 20th century race theory. So it's one that opened with, with a set of readings from prominent Victorian race scientists, right? So you know it's going to be bad stuff. But, like, this student earnestly, right after doing the reading, said that they were really put off by the language that these authors used. And I thought, well, shit, they wrote this stuff in the 1880s, right, in the 1890s. So what kind of language do you think they were going to use? And my concern is that this kind of dehistoricized narrative that centers on a, a, on a transhistorical abstraction called racism doesn't help us understand anything and gets in the way. And like also, just, just from... You know, a simplistic point of view of of historical interpretation. It perpetrates what E. P. Thompson 
once described as the condescension of posterity, right? That we assume that we have the universal moral compass when, you know, things were different back then, right? But in different times and places and contexts. To go back to Jim Crow, I think, you know, in your view, the misunderstandings and forgetting the lived realities of Jim Crow, it leads to the idea that, you know, racial inequality ended along with Jim Crow and that this this other idea that the civil rights movement's victories were actually trivial and that their efforts let the structure of racial inequality largely untouched. And the second earns more of your attention because of how easily it leads to his suggestion, often from younger leftists, that segregation was a good policy badly enforced. Right. I'd be curious to know where you've heard this argument expressed, and, and more importantly, where does it go wrong? I've heard it expressed from Black nationalists, you know, mainly outside the South, but not not just, since I was a teen, basically. I mean, that's kind of the Malcolm X story, too, right? I mean, that's part of it. I've heard it the last 20, 30 years from I mean, academics, um, critical race I mean, legal studies types, right? I think I've seen ads for it. I haven't seen, seen the actual book, but Gary Peller, who's a law professor at Duke, I believe, and of course, every time I say Duke, I have to say go Tar Heels. But um, did a law review article, a widely read law review article a number of years ago making this argument. And I think he's got a new book that also makes a version of that argument. Um, Harold Cruz's second book, Plural But Equal, also argues that the problem or that the civil rights movement took a mistaken path when it argued for the 14th Amendment equal protection approach to segregation instead of a focus on enforcement of separate but equal. And where I think it goes wrong, most fundamentally, is that separate but equal was never a real possibility. That would not have been the point. Where would the fun have been in making separate uh, I mean, facilities equal, right? That the point was always racial subordination. So that's a big problem right there. And I think, yeah, so people will always say, say things like, well, if we had gone that way, then something better might have happened. But, but once you understand, and it's kind of like, the, well, it's not unlike the reparations thing, right? And once you understand it, well, there's no possibility for going that way, then the conversation seems like a waste of time. But yeah, I mean, let me say this too. I almost mentioned this in my last diatribe, but from the end of 2005, um, to close to the end of 2007, I worked in an organizing project in South Carolina that they had me uh, spending a lot of time at flea markets, which around the state, poor state, are like uh, kind of the working class equivalent of shopping malls. Mm-hmm. And very early on in my time at the flea markets, I had a little epiphany that, well, you, you can see what Pitchfork, Ben Tillman, and Cole Blees, and the rest of those people had in mind with imposing Jim Crow, because here, so at that point, what what are we, like 40 years after the Voting Rights Act, there's such human residue of interracial coupling, right, and mating, right, and and having gone through several iterations, right, like an apparently mixed-race child with Two, two white young parents at a mall or 
or the black grandbaby in the arms of the grandmother who looks like she just stepped out of the uprising of 34, right? Up, I'm a documentary on the textile strike. And I thought, yeah, well, I mean, this is what those guys understood, that if people live together, work together, operate in the same circumstances, then things like that are going to happen. It's no moral statement that anybody's making, but it's just what what happens. That's that, that's one thing I always appreciated about the Lovings in uh, Virginia. These people weren't looking to make a statement. They were people who grew up next to one another and they coupled and because that's what happens, right? And no, right, the objective isn't to create a society that looks more like Brazil or Venezuela or or Cuba. But the point is that the only way that the Southern ruling class could comfortably contain the recurrent anxieties, right, since uh, the ratification of the 15th Amendment, of a biracial or interracial or cross-racial alliance of the broke, basically, that would challenge their prerogatives, that apartheid was, was the only way to keep that from happening. You were talking about your experience at these, these flea markets and, you know, working mm-hmm. on voting and obviously voting back in the news. Right. Yes. Joe Biden, who you uh, once de- described as his uh, tender mercies have been reserved for the banking and credit card <laughs> industries, which I think might be an accurate description. Um, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I mean, look at Delaware. Um, you know, the voting rights bill, uh, you know, the Senate is it's almost a doomed response to the massive spate of voting restrictions right. in Republican states since right. January 6th, many of which have disproportionately targeted voters of color. And right. comparisons with Jim Crow have naturally been standard. Do you find right. that accurate or is there something else going on? Well, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned it. And I'm glad you mentioned it in that way, right? Because I've been saying this even before, you know, the Republican campaign of voter suppression you know, didn't just come out of the incubator, right? Right. I mean, this has been going on since the Reagan era. And I've been saying this pretty much all along, that it may make one think of voter suppression at the end of the 19th century. That may seem like a reasonable analogy. But even then, while there's no question but that the, that, that the Democrats at that point and the Southern ruling class wanted to disfranchise blacks. They also wanted to and succeeded in uh, disfranchising more whites than you could sh- shake a stick at. And I don't quibble, right? I have no quibble with the assertion that those people who wanted to suppress blacks were racist, right? Pornographically racist often enough. But I still hold out the possibility that if blacks had dependably voted Democrat instead of of the Republican or populist, then, yeah, then the ruling class would have imposed white supremacy at the end of the 19th century in many, many ways. But it may be, or or it's likely, that disfranchisement wouldn't have been as central among them. And in fact, it was disfranchisement that actually preceded all the rest of the stuff, preceded and enabled it. Same thing now. There's enough audience out there for red meat arguments that Blacks and Hispanics and other people who aren't like us are voting illegally 
And part of the catch-22 there is that they're by definition, or, or to many people, they're they're voting illegally by definition because they aren't real Americans and therefore shouldn't have the right to vote in the first place. Right, Mitch McConnell said it. Right, exactly. Yeah, so it doesn't matter about the fraud, right, like any of the rest of that. Well, I mean, the fraud claims. But the question isn't just, and I understand, right, but I understand it, 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 it's, it's like a comedian going for a cheap laugh line about how much he likes women or I mean, loves America or whatever. But comparing voter restriction efforts now to, to voter restrictions at the end of the 19th century doesn't help us clarify what's going on. And moreover, like, so I still follow South Carolina politics. I, I mean, what this line does is create space for the right to generate black politicians who, who would argue that no fraud is real and and it's not about race. And they don't even have to be persuasive, right, in any broad or, or, or I mean, definitive way, right? Like it could be transparently disingenuous, but like all you need, especially if you're thinking about, you know, the prototype of the fascist agitator, which is kind of what we're talking about here. All you need is somebody you could point to to offer plausible deniability. So like when uh, you know, Nikki Haley appointed Tim Scott to serve out the remainder of Jim DeMent's, the appropriately named Jim DeMent's term in the Senate. Well, an op-ed editor from the Times asked, asked me to write a column about it, and he was bitterly disappointed at how bland the column was. Like, it didn't stop me from getting like more, more than 400 hate emails at my pen account in 24 hours. But my point was, it didn't mean anything, right? The other hype came with it that he's the first black person to serve in the U.S. Senate from the South since Reconstruction. But do you really think that this is consistent with that in any way? And I mean, the point was that he's a Republican whose views are consistent with with, with the worst elements of the Republican Party. I mean, my God, he had beaten Strom Thurmond's son for the House of Representatives seat right in the first district, well, as a Tea Party candidate. So there's a sense in which a line of argument or a complaint that opens the question, is it racist, moves us away from having the substantive argument that we need to have. And by the way, the, uh, the Michelle Alexander book, uh, The New Jim Crow, I don't know if you've read it, but like she, she teases us all the way through the book with mass incarceration just like Jim Crow, mass incarceration just like Jim Crow, till she gets to the point where she says, well, it's really not. So like then you ask, well, what's the power of the metaphor? or of the analogy, if it doesn't work. And that, um, again, to the professional historian of ideologies, that's an alarm bell that there's some ideology being cooked up there, right, in some place. So, yeah, look, I mean, disfranchisement is what the right wing wants, because there are, frankly, a lot more of us than there are of them, and their ideas will not win on a fair hearing. But to turn it into, or to limit the complaint about it, to contention that it's directed at harming a particular class of, class of people whom we are at this current conjuncture of what left liberal pieties are, are a class of people whose well-being we should be especially concerned about, misses the point and again, potentially shuts down opportunities for 
having the kind of discussions that that would enable us to broaden the alliance around the issues that we're all concerned about. You know, that's not to deny for an instant that stoking racism is a lot of what this stuff is all about, yeah. right? I mean, in the same way that sort of Tucker Carlson trying to mobilize the base against the desexualization of, of M&M candies, it is like the absurd extreme of this trope, but that's what the right does. That's what they are. That's who they are. That, that's what they have to be because, as I said, their ideas can't, can't win in any other way. Yeah, it is true. I felt like the, the M&M thing was just like, the mask is off. This oh yeah no no totally like, totally and then we have to respond like anyone has to respond this in any meaningful way it's like oh my god but again it's it shows that you know who's controlling the debate in this country right right no that's right it is maybe not be the side you think it is so right no i think that's absolutely correct yeah but hey so can i make a plug by the way oh yeah absolutely so we just started a podcast called the class matters podcast that's a product of the Debs Jones Douglas Institute, which is a 501c3 that was founded to um, advance the well-being of the working class, basically. And the tagline for this podcast is, we're the place that explores the question, what would the country look like if it were governed by and for the working class? We have one episode that's up. We've got another one that's a long discussion with the president of the American Postal Workers Union. That should be going up in a day or two. I can put that in the episode description. Oh, oh, great. Thank you. So that works. But thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. Yeah, well, thank you. It's been fun for me. And it's great to get to know you. I appreciate the questions a great deal. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 